You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. This section of Mark is um, a part of the larger section that began back in chapter 8 as Jesus begins to focus his teaching more intentionally on his disciples. And so we need to orient this passage in light of the larger context of Mark's gospel. You'll remember, as we've said a number of times throughout this series, that Jesus, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, but that Jesus does not reveal the fullness of his identity all at once. He allows it to unfold and to build over time. We've talked about the messianic secret and Jesus' attempt to keep things under wraps, even as he's doing mighty works and casting out demons and performing healings. We've seen repeated collisions that Jesus has had with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians who are now out to kill him, and that Jesus' ministry has basically driven a wedge right through the heart of Israel with those on the one side, like his disciples in the crowds who are flocking to his ministry, anticipating the kingdom that is coming, and those like the Pharisees who are hardened in their rebellion against God. In chapter 6, Jesus had sent out his disciples with authority over unclean spirits to cast out demons and to heal. But then in chapter 8, there's this shift as Jesus, um, after feeding the 5,000, tells the disciples to beware the leaven of the Pharisees, and they get confused, and they don't get it. And Jesus asks them a very important question. He says, are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? So the question in this section is, are the disciples as blind and deaf and hardened as the Pharisees? Do they get what Jesus' kingdom is all about? And since that time in chapter 8 up through here, we've seen that the answer to that question is yes and no. On the one hand, we've seen Peter's confession. Who do you say that I am? Jesus asks, and Peter confesses, You are the Christ. And Jesus says, yes, they've got it. And then from that point in chapter 8, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and be killed and after three days rise. And this is where Peter demonstrates that for all of his confession, there's still a lot of confusion. And so he gets that Jesus is the Messiah, but he doesn't understand that Jesus is the suffering Messiah, and so he rebukes Jesus, and then Jesus rebukes him back. His mind is set on the things of man. He thinks of kingship still as power over others, as being the boss, as ruling and reigning in glory, and he cannot fathom a suffering Messiah. It just doesn't make sense. And so from that point on, we're going to see a pattern in these chapters. We saw it there with Peter's confession and confusion, and it's going to continue in this passage, passage, and it runs like this. Jesus explains to the disciples what he's about to do. I am going to suffer, and I am going to die, and then I'm going to be raised. And the disciples either rebuke him, or they get really confused, or they misunderstand what he's talking about, and then Jesus has to dig in and instruct them further on the surprising nature of his kingdom. That's what this section of the Gospel of Mark is all about. So there, as, as Pastor David said last, two weeks ago, um, the disciples are seeing that Jesus is the Messiah, but their picture is distorted. It's like they see Jesus, but he's like a tree walking. 
That's the point of that healing, that strange healing where it takes two stages. As Pastor David noted, the two-stage healing of the blind man is meant to show that sometimes coming to Jesus and really getting it takes time, which ought to encourage all of us who have not got it all figured out. We often focus on the fact that the disciples immediately left their nets and followed Jesus. But we must also keep in mind their constant misunderstanding, their confusion, and their sin as they are following him. Because that's where most of us are too. So that brings us to the present passage. Jesus knows his disciples are struggling to get it. And so he forgoes his public teaching ministry. He kind of gets away from that. And he says, I've just got to focus on my disciples because he knows I'm heading to Calvary and I've got a short amount of time to really build into these men what my kingdom is all about. They have to begin to get it. And so he begins to teach them again. His, in uh, the passage that was just read, his, his betrayal uh, delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. When he's killed, after three days he will rise. And then notice the disciples didn't understand, but they were afraid to ask. And some commentators are like, they don't, they're afraid to ask because it makes them sad when Jesus talks this way. They don't like it that Jesus talks this way. I think they're sad. I, don't, I think that they, they're afraid to ask because they don't want to get called Satan like Peter did. Like, I just think they saw how that went and they said, no more. We're, we're just going to let him talk and talk about, whisper about it later. And then that confusion, the fact that they don't understand the nature of Jesus' work and ministry is what accounts for what happens in the rest of the passage. And you have to see the connection between the failure to understand the mission of Jesus, he's headed to the cross, and their false assumption that the kingdom of God is about who gets to be the boss. Those are so intimately tied right here in this gospel, and you need to see that one relates to the other. So for the rest of the sermon, I want to just flag four lessons in this passage The first comes in uh, verse 33 as they're walking along to Capernaum. Um, And Jesus says, what were you you discussing along the way? So he's walking along in front and the guys are back talking and, and he knows they're talking about something and he knows what they're talking about. And he gets there and he says, hey, what are you guys talking about? And they look at each other, nothing. We were talking. Were you talk- I wasn't talking. No, we, we, were, we were just walking. We weren't talking. And Jesus, Jesus sees right through it. He knows they were arguing about who is the greatest. And so he tackles this misunderstanding about the kingdom head on. And he says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And there's two things you need to see about that, that statement coming head on at uh, grown men walking along going, I think I'm going to be the greatest in the kingdom. No, bro, I think I am going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Well, but we were just with him on the mountain. Where were you? Right? That's, that's what's happening here. And Jesus tackles, tackles it head on. And, and the first thing you should know is it's not wrong to desire to be first. Do you notice that? It's good and right to seek Glory and honor and immortality. Like when they're on the Mount of Transfiguration and Peter says, it's good that we're here. It's good that he feels that. 
That's a good feeling. Jesus thought, it's good that you will be there. I'm taking you up on the mountain to see this because it's good for you. You should want to be here. It's good for them to see what humanity is meant to be, to see the blazing brilliance of manhood transfigured and glorified through the approval of a happy father. That's where humanity is headed and Jesus wants him to see it and love it and say, this is good. We want more of this. That's good. But, and this is the key, there is a specific path we must take in order to get there. The way up is down. Before there's a crown, there must be a cross. Before glory, there must be sacrifice and service. Before you can be exalted to the highest place, you must first be humbled to the dust. And so this is what Jesus has done is he has revealed his glory and said, this is where we're headed. It's headed for glory. It's headed for the glory of God manifested on a mountain. And that's where we're going. And then he says, but you got to get how you got to get there. Before you can be first disciples, you must be the last of all and servant of all. And there are so many places that that applies in your life and in my life. Like as a church, it's easy to look at other churches and start to think about which one of them is the greatest, which one's best, and to begin to compare. And, to be, and to, you can compare in all sorts of ways. There's a whole list of things that you can begin to tally up and say, what do they have, what do we have? That could happen in a church. It could happen among pastors. It could happen at your workplace. It could happen with your roommates where you begin to keep lists and keep track of how you stack up to someone else because you want to be the greatest. So many places where this applies. Let me drill, though, into one concrete one that's relevant for many people, though not all of us, and this has to do with marriage. One manifestation of who is the greatest is who has the harder job. Like, husbands, you can come home from work And you can think, I have been serving and slaving and toiling all day long. I have worked hard to provide for this family. I have busted my tail. I'm exhausted. And I'm coming home to collapse on the couch. And the attitude can subtly be, I've got the harder job, and it's time for someone to serve me. That can happen. And there's a simple test to know whether that's happening. Like, when you come home, do you come home to make demands Or do you come home to relieve burden? Does your wife eagerly anticipate your arrival because she knows you're going to swoop in ready to lift things and carry things and help? Or does she subtly dread it because it's going to be one more burden, one more thing, one more failure? And there's a danger for wives as well because it's easy to fall into the temptation that says, He gets to go off to work every day. He gets to have conversations with grown-ups. And I have toddler talk for eight hours over housework and grocery shopping and dinner preparation and on and on and on. And in both cases, we're in danger of being like the disciples who are competing with each other about who is the greatest. Who has the harder job? And that can spill over. That's that's an example in marriage, but it can spill over into any relationship where you begin to 
compare the difficulty that you face as a testimony of your greatness. Look how much I've suffered compared to them. They don't know what it's like. I'm the greatest because I have gone through fill in the blank and they never have. And Jesus comes to this and says, this this heart, this attitude that wants to compare and contrast people and elevate one over the other, that is not what my kingdom is all about. That's what most kingdoms are about. I get why you think that, disciples, but that's not what this kingdom will be about. If you want to be first, if you want to go up on the mountain of glory, there's another hill you have to climb first, and it's the hill of sacrifice, of cross, of Calvary. That's the first. And that brings us to the second of Jesus' teaching. He wants to make this concrete. And what he does here when he talks about the children is so hard for us. It's hard for us to grasp how upside down and surprising this exhortation is. Because one of the gifts of Christianity to Western civilization is the dignity and value of children. Because the ancient world looked down upon children dismissed them as inconsequential when they were young. They're not important. Relegated them to nannies and tutors until they were old enough to actually contribute something to society. And Christ's teaching here and elsewhere gave the world a new vision of what children are and one that we can often take for granted. But we may be entering an era of history where this type of teaching is, again, very countercultural because many in our day view children primarily as a burden, as an obstacle to true flourishing because they get in the way of the really important things like my career. And they get in the way of travel and they get in the way of friendships and a full life cannot be had because there are children in the way. And Jesus says that is a lie. Jesus wants us to see that our attitude toward children demonstrates how deeply we get what the kingdom's all about. So notice what he does. He wants to give a clear, visible object lesson in what his kingdom is like. He wants to rebuke our ugly penchant for competition and rivalry and glory seeking. He wants to undercut our lust for feeling important, our selfish ambition our desire to get on a high horse and look down on everybody else. He wants to undercut all of that, so he gathers us all around, and he brings a child into our midst, and he says, here, see this? You see this little bundle of need with the never-ending questions and sometimes the nagging? See the little teapot of sin with the temper tantrums and the squabbling? I want you to receive him in my name. I want you to embrace her for my sake. And if you do, this is the crucial thing in the passage. If you do, if you will receive this child in my name, you will get me. And if you get me, you get the one who sent me. Get what Jesus is saying here. God gives us children Because he wants you to receive Jesus by receiving children in Jesus' name. And not just sweet and snuggly infants. Because some of y'all were thinking that. Like, pass me the little snuggly one. 
and I'll take more of Jesus through the snuggly one. That happens. That's true. And not just your kids. This probably wasn't one of the disciples' kids that he... You kind of wonder what that situation was like. Like, hey, kid, come here. Uh, But uh, it wasn't just your kids or the nice kids or the cool kids or the cute kids. But kids who squawk and whine, some of them are afflicted with a terminal case of the fussies. The annoying kids, the frustrating kids, the strong-willed kids, the hard-headed kids, the defiant kids. Receive them in all of their wide-eyed wonder and all of their playfulness and all of their immaturity and all of their dependency and all of their sin. Receive them in my name, Jesus says, and in so doing, you get me. Now, why? Why does he say this? I think it's because if you can climb down off of your high horse and if you can get down on the level of a child, like if you can get past your silly self-importance and you can care about the simple things that children care about, like Legos, if, I just got an amen from a, it's up here. <laughs> if you can get over yourself and you can join them in their joy, in their joy, if you can embrace children in good times, in hard times, and in ugly times, then if you can do that, you just might be able to receive anyone in Jesus' name. And Jesus wants you to know what his kingdom is all about. Now, the thrust of that passage gives me the opportunity to talk about something very particular to our church, and it's our serve rotation for childcare. And I want to do it in three stages. I want to begin with gratitude to all of you. Um, I am deeply thankful to God for this church because over the last four years, we have grown from a church of about 40 to a church of 300 plus, from two community groups to 20 community groups, and from around 15 children to over 80. And not only have we offered child care for those under five years old, we've also offered Sunday school for older children. And you guys have made that happen. And over the last year, you've done it in less than ideal circumstances. Let's just put it that way. As we've sojourned around the Twin Cities using spaces and rooms that were not built for children with a very limited amount of storage and very limited resources. And even here in our new location, it's still not ideal because this building's under construction and the rooms that we share with the conservatory are very small and filled with very, very large pianos. But you've kept serving. And some of you have gone the extra mile. You've assisted with coordination and you volunteered to fill gaps when there haven't been enough workers down there. And so I just want to start with thank you. Thank you for receiving the children in Jesus' name in this church. Second, part of the reason childcare has been difficult, especially over the last year, is owing to weaknesses and failures, particularly on my part. I can think of two in particular, and the first is at various times, the complexities of the logistics and the amount of change, the number of kids, the 
changing spaces in the technologies has overwhelmed my administrative abilities. And I've not equipped you well to serve. And that's made it more difficult than it had to have been. And so I just want to say I'm sorry. And the second thing is I've not done as good of a job of communicating expectations and structure because they've been in such flux and I've not known what to say. I've been waiting for some stability so that I could say something, but I haven't even told you that I'm waiting for stability to say something. And so it's easy to feel like, do they even know how hard it is down here? And so that failure of communication, for that failure of communication, I'm also sorry. And I just want you to know that to remedy both of those weaknesses, it's not just about I'm, go- I'm taking responsibility and moving on. We have added Amelia Schumann, who's down there right now serving our children as an administrative assistant so that I can, uh, so that I and Aaron Horn and the rest of our team can manage this ministry. And now that we have a better sense of space here in the coming weeks, you should expect more communication. We'll be having a serve team training for coordinators and representatives from community groups in a few weeks. And if you would like to be involved and help in a, in a more active way in administering Childcare, I would love to have you. And so talk to your community group leader or to me or to Amelia and let us know and we'd be happy to get you in on those emails and communications. But part of that communication begins now, okay? Here's what we need. With the size of rooms we have and the number of children we have, we need 30 plus workers every week, 30. That's roughly one-tenth of our membership on a five-week rotation with our serve teams. That's a big ask but it's not an overwhelming ask. And that brings me to the third element of what I want to say about it, and that's your responsibility, because we need you. When your serve team is up for childcare, we need you to be there, if at all possible. And we know that sometimes you're going to be out of town, and sometimes you're going to be sick. And some of you have longer-term responsibilities with other things around here that prevent you from being able to be there on your week. And we understand all of that. But, that's, but because of all of that, that's why for the rest of us, we need you. We need a large number of available volunteers in each serve team who make it their goal to be here to serve the children and families of this church. And we don't just need warm bodies. We need people to show up eager and ready to serve, to be the last of all and the servant of all. Because, and remember this, you must remember this, otherwise this won't work. We're not just making a demand of you. We want to give you something. Jesus wants to give you something. He wants to give you himself. And you receive him when you receive them in his name. So, Every few weeks, we're placing you in the midst of the children, and we're asking you to find Jesus there. As I've said before, you will miss the sermon, you will miss the singing, and you will miss the table, but you need not miss Jesus. That's what he promises here. If you receive the children in Jesus' name, if you welcome them and play with them and read with them and pray with them and show them what he is like and delight in them and laugh with them and hold them when they're missing their mom and you do all of those things, resting in his promises and receiving him in Jesus' name, Jesus says, you get me. So get him. When your serve team is up, respond promptly to that email, get here early to prepare the rooms, and prepare your heart to welcome children in Jesus' name. Now, 
The remainder of the passage has two fundamental elements. Um, There's two basic lessons that I want to wrap up here with. The first is about about the nature of Jesus' kingdom. The first is we do not control the kingdom. When John comes, after hearing this message and having this focus on the disciples, right? Jesus is focusing on these guys. John says, hey, we saw some other guys who were not with us doing stuff in your name, and we tried to stop them because they weren't following us. Now, that's interesting, right? They weren't following us. Not they weren't following you. They weren't following us. And Jesus says, you guys still don't get it. My kingdom is not the sort of thing that you will manage. You will not run it. You will not control it. You will not dictate where and how and when it shows up and where it flourishes. That is not your job. Your job is to receive it, not manage it. And so... The lesson for us is that other people do not need our stamp of approval in order to serve Jesus. We want people to move toward Jesus. We ought to be glad when other people are laboring in his name, and we should allow their profession and their deeds to show themselves over time, because in the end, Jesus says, there are only two sides. Either you're with him and for him, or you're against him. And so if someone is trying to be on team Jesus, don't stop them. Draw them in. And if you're for him, Jesus says, you won't just focus on the flashy things like the exorcisms and the healings. You won't disdain the small things like giving a cup of cold water to someone simply because they bear the name of Jesus. Like him, you can do the big things or the really simple things basic, small things. And if you're doing them in his name and for his sake, Jesus says, don't stop it. The spirit blows where he wills. I'm at work. And then the second aspect of his kingdom that he highlights before it's up. And you know this is all one section because you get to the end of the passage at the end of chapter nine and it says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another, which wraps it back to the conflict on the road. But the last part that Jesus wants us to see about his kingdom is the total war that we must wage on sin. He gives us a word about the gravity of causing other people to sin, and we get a word about the gravity of causing ourselves to sin. And the word for sin in the passage is actually not the normal word for sin. It's actually the word skandalizo, which means to stumble. You may have seen other passages in the Bible which talk about stumbling. Stumbling is not just an oops kind of sin. Elsewhere in the Bible, it's, it's, what, uh, it's a falling away, a turning aside, a rejecting, a walking away. It's what, uh, it's what happened. Many will fall away on the last day. They will stumble and they will betray one another and hate one another, Matthew 24. When on the night that Jesus is betrayed and all of the disciples leave him, they scandalizo, they fall away. It's that kind of rejection. A turning away from God, whether from hatred or from fear of man. The uh, parable of the soils, you remember the rocky ground? The rocky ground where it, it uh, springs up and then withers in the heat? It's, that, that plant is said to scandalizo, to fall away. So stumbling is not an oops kind of thing. It's not a momentary misstep. It's, a, it's not a little trip. It's a reorientation of your life away from Jesus. And Jesus says... If you cause someone else to do that, woe to you. It would be better 
for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown into the sea than that you cause someone to turn their life away from Jesus. And you see how this follows from what John just did, right? John just saw people doing things in Jesus' name and said, stop that. And Jesus says, don't get in the way. Don't build a wall that makes it harder for people to know Jesus and trust Jesus and treasure Jesus. Don't keep young, immature believers from coming to Christ. That's why it's a big deal when someone tries to seduce a new Christian away from their faith or tries to wrap up the faith with all kinds of things that God hates. Leading, enticing, and pressuring someone to violate their conscience. This is what Paul is talking about in his gospel. I mean, in his letters. To flaunt the law of God, that's unbelievably serious. Jesus hates it. And he will not be kind to those who cause others to stumble. So those who numb the consciences of young believers by encouraging them to do things that God forbids are storing up wrath for the day of judgment. They are speaking evil of Jesus by claiming his endorsement for ungodly practices, and Jesus will not forget it. But that's just about causing others to stumble. He also says, you've got to focus this, turns, the, turns it back in here. Don't just look out there, turn it back here, because... We must wage a total war against our own stumbling. So much so that we're willing to take drastic measures to avoid falling away from Jesus. Because the stakes are high. The three verses there are meant to underscore the fact that this is a total war. If it's your eye, if it's your hand, if it's your foot, every part of you needs to be obedient to Jesus. And if it's not, cut it off. Because heaven and hell are at stake. This is he, so you need to feel the weight of this and you need to examine yourselves. Are there areas of your life that cause you to stumble, that harden your heart to him, that lead you to kind of turn, begin this slow turn and slow roll that begins to pick up steam until you're gone? Jesus says, if you see things in your life that cause you to do this, amputate them. It's better. I'll give you the hand back someday. You can get a new eye. I've got one waiting for you in glory. Don't let the eye you have now keep you from me. So, Jesus is not playing games in his kingdom. His kingdom is a big deal when it comes to stumbling blocks and sin. In the end, there are only two sides. You're either with him or against him. And everything that keeps you from being with him must be purged. Now, that's the kingdom. That's the surprising name. That's what the disciples have had a hard time getting. A kingdom where the servant of all receives the first place. That's upside down and backwards. Where we don't seek to dominate others or to lord our glory over others, but we seek to serve them and we can receive even children in his name. Where we don't try to manage the kingdom, 
but we let the Spirit blows where he wills. And where we don't put stones of stumbling in the path of others, and nor do we make peace with our own sin. That's the kind of kingdom that Jesus is building. That's the kind of kingdom that we receive. And here's one of the places where we receive it. Simple bread, simple wine. It's a surprise. Did you think that this was a royal, royal feast? I'm not going to make a joke about the wedding, but I could. Here it is, simple bread, simple wine, offered to you to remind you week in and week out that Jesus' kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world. It's simpler. It's lower. It's down. It's cross. It's sacrifice. And at the end, glory. I'm going to invite the pastors and the team to come. And as they do, remind you that the bread that we eat each week now is gluten-free so we can all partake together. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.